put the kettle on, get the good biscuits out, because it's time for Bouncy Museum's Natters. I'm Michael, the digital curator at Bouncy Museums, and in this podcast we're taking you back to 2013. In a year which was soundtracked by Lordy, Justin Timberlake and Daft Punk, while at the cinemas we were watching Iron Man 3 and Frozen, and at home on telly we were watching the first series of Gogglebox. Something else a little bit closer to home was happening. That was the sound of the countdown to the opening of Experience Barnsley on the 27th of June at 2pm. Lots of people came together to cut a massive red ribbon outside the town hall. You are now going to hear from a few people who were part of the team who created Barnsley's first museum. Hello everyone, my name's Lynn Dunning, I'm Head of Barnsley Museums. I was uh, involved in the project um, to create Experience Barnsley Museum, um, probably starting around 15 years ago actually. Um, and I'd like to introduce my colleagues who are here today and they will explain their role in the project as well. So we're going to start with you, Gemma Conway. Hello, I'm Gemma and I was the community curator at the time that Experience Barnsley opened um, and before then. So a lot of my time was spent going out and around the borough um, and finding all the amazing objects and archives that people had. Thank you. Paul, can you introduce yourself? I can indeed. I'm Paul Stebbing and I'm the Archives and Local Studies Manager and have been in post since 2007. So when I first arrived in Barnsley, uh, plans for experience Barnsley were already very much underway. We were just waiting final confirmation that the grant was being uh, awarded. So a very busy but exciting time for me as I got to grips with managing the archive service, but also helping to plan for this exciting new attraction in the centre of Barnsley. Okay, John, can I bring you in now? Yes, so John San, I was the project manager for Experience Barnsley um, from around the time that Paul joined as well, when those ideas were starting to come together about how on earth we're going to build this museum, uh, through to the day it opened 10 years ago, which is terrifying how quickly time has flown since then. I thought it'd be really good if we could chat a little bit about right back at the beginning and how it all started, but I rather suspect I'm probably the only person that was here right back at the start. Um, but yeah, if we could have a chat about our kind of me- earliest memories of the, the planning of the project. Um, I think mine goes back to um, 2005 and it was the year that um, Joe Hayward, Councillor Joe Hayward was mayor of Barnsley and he decided that he was dedicating his year in office to heritage and thought it'd be really great if we could have a museum in Barnsley, a town centre, um, to sort of celebrate the, the town's social industrial heritage because uh, there really wasn't one. We had museums in Barnsley at that time, Cannon Hall, Wurzborough Mill, Cooper Gallery, but there wasn't any one place you could go and kind of find out about local heritage and the history, the history of our borough. Um, I think Joe thought it was going to be quite a quick process um, and we'd get it sort of, you know, knocked up in his mayoral year. Um, but obviously it was a, a, a quite a complex process of finding a location, finding some funding and then building a collection and finding out what people wanted in in their museum, really. In those very early days, I think before you joined us, John, as as project manager, I remember there being a a steering group, and lots of kind of really interested local people, um, including historians, um, Gerald Elliott, who's sadly no longer with us, um, and Terry Sykes, of course, um, who was chair of the Friends of Cavan Hall at that time. He... Um, took up the the chairmanship of that steering group, along with other people, Joe Hayward, 
um, Brian um, Elliott, local historian, um, and very various others. Um, but right from the start, I think it's fair to say the community and the council um, leadership. So, so Steve Houghton, really, really behind the project, really, really want to support it and see how it's going to happen. Um, but we had to go through various sort of funding options before we finally managed to um, get some development cash to start looking at it. But I also, I really remember um, a petition that the steering group led on way back. Um, and I remember them getting 10,000 signatures on this petition to say they wanted this museum, they wanted a museum in Barnsley. And I remember thinking how amazing um, that people are so passionate about their local heritage. And that was just really brilliant. And at that time, Barnsley was going through this transformation process called Remaking Barnsley, which was led by the architect Will also, which a lot of people remember the Tuscan Hill Village. Um, but every time people were asked about what they wanted from the town centre, they were saying they wanted a museum and they wanted somewhere where they could engage with their heritage. And I, I just thought that was brilliant. And that, that sort of gave me the confidence really to think this was something that we could actually achieve. Um, so John, what, what are your early recollections of, of, of the project and coming into, into post and where, where we were at that time really? I think it was the sheer kind of terrifying scale of the opportunity and the excitement, but also the challenges as well. Because like you said, there was that, that sense of Barnsley is a very proud place, but there was also that really kind of um, that big awareness that there was kind of quarter of a million people, but didn't actually have a museum of Barnsley and didn't have anywhere that all those stories came together. So I think it was that sense of scale whereby everybody was so excited about transforming the town hall, but there was no kind of real sense about how that was going to work and whereabouts in the town hall it was going to be and, and how the physicality and, and all that kind of thing was going to work as well. But also that we had huge potential amount of stories that we try need to try and get into that museum. And I think a lot of the next few years for us as a project team was almost absorbing all those stories and that sense of what, part, what people wanted to say about Barnsley. And of course, the other thing was that we didn't have a collection. And I'm pretty sure it's still one of the very, very few or potentially unique examples where a museum in the UK has been created from scratch by going out to the people and saying, what stuff do you want to go into this museum? Um, and then over the next few years, people raided their lofts, their sheds, their greenhouses under their beds, the bedside tables and everything else, and obviously brought together a massive collection. So it was the challenge and that kind of sense of opportunity, which were really scary, but really exciting right at the start. Yeah, I think everyone thought we were a bit crazy that, you know, that we could start this collection from scratch, didn't they? Um, but Gemma, do you want to tell us a bit about those? Because you came in in the, in the role specifically to start building that collection and find out what people had in their attics and sheds. Yeah, at that time, it was like you say, there were so many people behind it and so many people wanted to donate things and lend things, which was absolutely amazing. Like we couldn't have asked for any more. And I, I remember those early kind of antiques roadshow almost style events that we went around the borough. We went to community centres, we popped up in supermarkets, we popped up in libraries, we popped up in all these different places across the borough and sort of said, come and and see us and bring, bring us objects come and tell us what you've got and um you know I remember in in Silkston John we were there and people came that. with 
with some amazing pottery and you know thousands of year old all these things that we were just absolutely blown away with at the time and I think like you say it was almost that overwhelming sense of we need to do justice to all all these stories and all these objects how can we possibly show everything we would need probably a town hall five times the size to actually get everything on display that everybody wanted but it was that kind of sense of everybody was behind it and everybody had something to say which was brilliant um so yeah following those sort of antiques roadshow style type events we then began to think about how are we going to theme these collections and what are we missing and what are we, what are we looking for um and, and luckily we had those donations from Sheffield which were our archaeology collections that had not had anywhere to kind of show before so they were coming back to us so we knew we'd got this early history um and we wanted to get more recent items as well so it was it was a really fantastic time and I've I've got memories of all these amazing objects that we never thought we would get I remember being sat at Cannon Hall in our offices and an email popped through saying um I want to donate a stone age axe hammer to your collection and we were like okay Stone Age, who, who would have one of those in their, you know, garage used as a doorstop for 40 years? But lo and behold, there it was. And, you know, amazing things like that that just sort of came out of the, the woodwork almost as part of the project was brilliant. I think that that sort of idea, that, that point you made about the repatriation, as I called it, of the archaeology collections and of collections that we knew were in other museums around the county and further afield as well, was really a turning point for the project, wasn't it? As well as just that sort of a, a magnificent amount of stuff out there that people had and were dying to share with someone. It was, the, it was the stories that came with those objects, wasn't it? It was really important that we we got those stories. And I remember, John, the idea of um, taking the photographs of all the, the people with their objects. That was a really special idea as well, I think. I think that was the thing for me, because there was, the thing about creating a collection from scratch, but what that meant was we could capture those stories at the same time. And I think there was a real kind of sense of purpose on our part collectively. And to a degree, I guess we're a little bit ahead of our time. It doesn't, that doesn't sound too daft from, in a, from a museum perspective in terms of we're all adamant that the significance that was applied to these objects was what the donors and what people associated with them. Um, what the stories were around them, how people thought they were important, how they should be presented, as opposed to was lot sat in a dark room somewhere, going, "Oh, that's very important from a you know curatorial, archaeological, or whatever perspective." Um, so yeah, and I, there were just some objects that were absolutely astonishing, like that. They're all coming back to me now, like you were saying, Gemma, um, of stories which you know, in terms of the objects, you might look at them and just think, "Oh, that's an old boot, for example, or that's an old water bottle from the pit." But then, as soon as you hear the story behind it in the words of the person that was sharing it about, for example, their dad walking back from the pit wearing those boots. It really is called coming back to me now. Um, and, and things like that. Then it was just absolutely transformational. And, and for me, that was the, the power of experience bonds. It was, it was creating a collection, but having the opportunity to, um, yeah, to capture the stories at the same time. It's almost the different levels of, of meaning within those objects as well. So it had that personal meaning and we could capture that from, from that person's story and their memories. And then some of the things were like nationally significant that people had got in their attics, like the Women Against Pit Closures banner, which had been in a, a carrier bag for 30 years. And somebody came forward with that on an open day when we'd done a call out and the national significance of 
of that banner was just amazing but to have the women there telling us their stories and what it meant to them to hold it and march and sing those songs and how we managed to capture that as part of this collections drive was it like you say it was kind of that rare golden opportunity to do that and sort of do you have some reflections Gemma and John on sort of actually creating and you know actually designing the museum so we've got objects we've got these wonderful stories and that process of actually putting the museum together because I remember thinking at the time that people were just expecting a few kind of museum display cases or something not this kind of amazing new building and this transformation of our town hall as well and I can also remember having discussions with the designers of the museum who were working with us about sort of the importance of having that timeline, the Barnsley Wall as it became known, because there wasn't anywhere before where people could see <clears throat> that, you know, Barnsley's history had started before the 19th century or and it had, you know, the Vikings had been here, uh, the Romans had been here, we had this amazing prehistory. Um, so did you have any, any reflections on that time as well? I think we I think we really pushed the designers in terms of wanting more like we had so many objects and so many stories and we knew we had to be selective in that and to be you know to tell a cohesive story but it was more about every image was considered every word was considered everything in there had a purpose and we knew that we'd be able to change some of these themes so we couldn't get everything on display all in one go and we were very conscious of telling people that when they were donating their objects and archives um but it was the case of you know let's try and get some of those stories pushed back as far as we can and also up to the present day as well so i think it was you know it took a lot of work from from the team and the community actually because we did do you remember john we did all those walk arounds with people and we were sort of saying imagine this being here what do you think um was, you know we did we did all those tours and things didn't we so we tried to inform and and engage people as much as we could through the whole process because the whole ethos was it's by the people for the people almost so it was that sort of sense of you know not just from our point of view what we want to see but what's important to you i just remember we must have shown hundreds of people around the building and then the building site yeah. And a lot of that was us saying, we think about putting this here, what do you reckon? And then people, because bands of people can be quite frank, there's quite a bit of, that kind of sounds all right, but we thought about doing this instead. Um, but that also fed into the stories that we were sharing. So I remember being stood at one end of what was then, I think, the opposition offices or something. And it was where we we're going to build this kind of making history, family-friendly uh, gallery. And saying to a group of teenagers, oh, this we're going to do something here about the Barnsley dialects and all this kind of stuff. And then one of the teenagers, I think, whose family had only moved to Barnsley a few months before, said, oh, first time I heard it, I thought everybody was speaking French or something. And then two and a half years later, that exact quote appeared on the wall, um, which was astonishing. But yeah, I think we certainly we pushed it. It was a, a fantastic kind of team effort on behalf of all of us and the museum designers. Um, lots of creativity going on. Um, and just really pushing it you know we things like that big main gallery which we uh we knocked a lot of the walls down inside it which we then discovered was taking it back to how it'd been in the 1930s so in heritage wise and conservation wise that was absolutely fine but I remember when that was first mentioned it was like oh my god we can't do that um but yeah it was fascinating I've actually got a uh, I've got a photograph of my son wearing a nappy with all the um, potential layouts of the museum on all, all, all over our sofa, 
and he's finishing his GCSEs on Thursday, so that gives you an idea about how long we're talking about. But yeah, and we, we did lots of road trips as well, didn't we, to other museums, kind of all across the UK, and asked other people who had done it what we should do, and probably just as critically what we shouldn't as well, which was very useful. I was just going to say, I think it's it was the same in terms of like the learning side of it as well. Any interactives we had in there, any audio, visual, it was all telling those stories. And I think that was that was always considered in the run up and the kind of the planning stages and things is to if we couldn't show somebody's object or archive or whatever it was, can we tell the story in a different way? And is that through a family history learning resource or is it through something else? So I think it was that that kind of sense we were we had so much information it was so overwhelming but then it was kind of you know bringing certain elements in to make to make sense of it or to be representative of how Barnsley is and was I think you're right I think that consultation was just so important in terms of the practicalities of the designs and stuff because I think as a team we kind of started to get a sense of oh yeah that's going to really work or that's going to work but then it wasn't until we went out and talked to people that you just you really got a sense of that. And we had some big surprises where we were convinced something was going to be amazing, which didn't quite work. And some of those interactives. Um, do you remember when we kind of mocked up all the interactives using kind of glue and paste and bits of paper and stuff and took them around Barnsley schools? And, and the kids literally kind of ripped them apart and we're kind of like, oh, yeah, but that's really boring. Why don't you put a magnifying glass with it and it'll be wicked or... That was right tough. Could you have like nine cubes instead of 12? Yeah, you know, that kind of basic level. But yeah, it was an astonishing process to be involved in. I think um, the wider sort of works um, that, that came about associated with creating the museum as well were really important. So I'm thinking of the cleaning of the exterior of the town hall, um, you know, transforming the, the, the Portland stone back to some of this lovely gleaming white, the creation of the square and the gardens alongside the town hall where there used to be just a sort of horrible little car park um, and you know through to getting um, the piece on loan from Yorkshire Sculpture Park uh, the Nigel Hall piece that's on display outside the town I'm just you know I remember really feeling like the starting point for the transformation of, of our town centre um, and, and all the, the the long work conservation work around the windows John and all that detail of um, preser preserving that building really and, and giving it a new life was a really important part of the project. Because it comes back to what it was built in 32, 33. And so yeah. it did desperately need a lot of work doing. And like I say, the most visible part was the uh, the cleaning of it. And I remember using these kind of sprays and the, the contractor said you could, you could use a spray to take ink off a newspaper without damaging the paper. It was that kind of sensitive to the building's Portland stone. I guess in some respects, the most invisible part, just because it was so carefully planned, was the replacement of all the windows. And I remember, I think there was a, because uh, if people remember, the entire building got kind of swathed in green scaffolding, kind of sheeting, what have you. Um, and all this stuff went on behind it. And obviously the, the scaffolding was then brought down and everybody went, oh my God, it's beautiful and it's gleaming white. And then somebody wrote a, a letter, I think, to the Barnsley Chronicle saying, oh, yes, but they said they were going to replace the windows and they've not done it. And obviously, in fact, we had. It's just historic England was so keen for us to do an exact match to the existing windows that people thought we hadn't bothered changing them. But, yeah, we, we put that right. But that building, Barnsley people are so proud of it. Um, they saw on Facebook the other day, people asking for kind of South Yorkshire's best buildings. And just Barnsley leapt online saying it was their town hall. Um, so I think we did justice to it in terms of uh, sorting it out and storing it. 
I think that's one of the things about the project, isn't it? It was giving that building, really giving it back to the people. And so there'd just been a few kind of council services operating from that building. And now it was really thrown, the doors were thrown open for the, for the public to come in. And Paul, at this time, um, can you tell us a bit about archives and how you sort of started to get involved with the project um, and then finally sort of the, the, the full integration really with the museum service? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I can remember meeting John, you know, very early on. I think it was about week three in the job for me that John and I met for the first time. Um, so I kind of had to hit, hit the ground running, really, um, learning uh, about the archive services and the collections that we had, but also embracing this fantastic new project. Um, Archives and Local Studies was over in the old Central Library um, prior to uh, 2013. Uh, we had some successes, I think, in the years leading up to the Experience Barnsley project, but um, there was also lots of untapped potential, I think, as well. There was limited storage space in the old central libraries, which had led to the collections being stored in multiple locations across the borough. Uh, there was also very few indexes and catalogues, meaning that accessing the archive collections was quite difficult. So I think the EB project helped to bring many of these collections together uh, and open them up to whole new audiences. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Barnsley Museums Natters. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with more celebrations of Experience Barnsley's 10th birthday. In the meantime, we've got more celebrations on our website if you just follow the link in the podcast description. You can also support the work of Barnsley Museums by donating to Barnsley Museums and Heritage Trust. The music used in this podcast is by Alex Grohl, who you can find on Pixabay. And that's the end of that chapter.